0: Okay, Shalom Aleichem everyone, it is great to see you, and anyone new that's coming in, please feel free to come on all the way up front, there's plenty of seats over here, don't be shy, we're not going to be picking on anybody here, come on all the way to the front, Miron, it's good to see you. Okay, Shalom Aleichem everyone, Um, Baruch Hashem, O'schus to be with you here tonight. First of all, I just want to say that the, uh, the video camera over here, equipment, is being provided by Tor anytime. Thank you very much. This shoe will not be on Tor anytime, um, but if you, if you need this, uh, please reach out to the KOLOL um, for this and other questions you might have, questions later on, maybe questions that didn't, didn't get addressed, um, at kololaterasami at gmail.com. Also, we want to say that this shear is dedicated for Rofuchlema, for, for Larissa Bass Elizabeth, and uh, Ilui Nishmus Matlia Bass Israel. Finally, I want to say a thank you to a new found friend and a colleague in certain ways. It is David Imbo he is an associate professor at UIC Physics Department of uh, Quantum Mechanics specifically. He Spent about ten hours with me polishing me up on my, on my physics, my quantum physics specifically. So, really appreciate his help. Okay, uh, exciting topic today. The topic is science, Torah, the relationship. We're gonna have two basic premises we're gonna be working with tonight. Um, if you disagree with either, you might not find the shoe room compelling. However, if you agree with both, I think you'll find the sheer illuminating. Premise number one is that every word of the Torah is absolutely true. Furthermore, a basic assumption we're going to be working with, assumption that the Rambam lays down more in the Vuchim. if you want to check it out, Helik Base, Periak Lamed, the Rambam says the principle is we learn the Torah in the most straightforward, natural way, that the that we rec- that we know how to learn Torah obviously it doesn't mean just reading an English translation. It means learning the Torah the way that we are meant to learn the Torah, and, and we assume that to be the story of the Torah, unless proven otherwise. The Ram says, if we, if one could prove to me that this is not what happened, then I would be I would be compelled to understand. To, to try to see if the story could be understood differently, unless proven otherwise, we assume the straightforward understanding of the psukim Again, it could be it could be the depth of the understanding, but nonetheless, the, the, what the what the Torah is telling us to be the truth. And it goes without saying that anything that the sages taught us is for sure to expound on the Torah. How the sages interpreted the Torah is for sure assumed to be true. Okay. Um that's assumption number one. Assumption number two is that scientists are very, very serious people. They're very, very smart people. They've been working on these things for a very long time, and there are many of them. And anyone that thinks that they're gonna that they're gonna just brush science off with the back of their hand uh, just means that you've never met a real scientist and never really discussed it with them because otherwise you would understand it has to be taken seriously okay so those are the two assumptions also i want to to make a disclaimer the disclaimer is that we can only address the facts on the ground today science is an ever-evolving field uh... i'm sure that plenty of new research has come up since i did my research we can only so LMI shain of We we can only judge and decide and discuss that which we know today. If new evidence comes to the forefront down the line, then uh, we will have to recondemn and and do this thing again. Um, which is great. I'd love to see you all guys next year. Okay, if need be. So here we go. Question: A lot of people are wondering about is there's, in fact, become a term out there called scientism. Has anyone heard the term scientism? Okay, so let's phrase it a little bit differently. Militant atheism. Has anyone heard the term militant atheism? Yes. Okay, so the the Wall Street Journal labeled that there is a rising wave of militant atheism, which some people are terming uh, scientism, isms are all types of religion, right? Uh, so, scientism means that people have idealized and uh, turned into a entire approach to life science, right? And the question that we're going to want to understand is, is this a new development? Is this something that's innate to science? If it hasn't happened in the past, what's changed that's happening now? We're obviously all aware that some of the greatest scientists to have ever lived... Were religious people, deeply religious people. Isaac Newton, if you, if you want an example, right? Um, and yet now it seems, if one reads the popular media, that it's basically it's uh, you know it, it's uh, it's a death match, right, in a cage, like to the death, right? It's it's either going to be science or religion, and like you, know, you can only accept one or the other. How did how did this uh, how did this happen? Okay, so also just for for my own information so I can kind of custom tailor the uh, the shear a little bit just to get a little bit of feel for the crowd um, science knowledge um, how many actual practicing or at least trained scientists do we have in the room one okay. Um, Let's try the other side of the extreme. How many people in this room do we have that more or less are happy to say that they don't know much at all about science? How many people? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, how many people have an interest and have read up on science? Okay. Fine. So, we're going to we'll do our best. For some of you, it'll be some of the things will be a little bit simple. Hopefully, we'll still keep you on your toes. Some of you might have to run a little bit to you know, keep up, but uh, we, we did give you all um, something to write on, so please write down your questions, and, uh, and same towards the end, we'll get to them. Okay, so we're going to try to understand this, this phenomenon, w- what is happening over here. Are the two essentially a contradiction? Does it have to be a contradiction? Why is it being portrayed as a contradiction between, the, between science and religion? And what is the proper relationship that they should have? And not by coincidence we're gathered here in Hanukkah. Hanukkah is a time that the Kalausrael were asking themselves the same exact question. Right? Two, two and a half thousand years ago, when Greece was the science of the day, and it's it's, it's, it's an obvious matter that, that Greece was certainly the forerunner, perhaps the founder of science, obviously, modern day science has gone through a number of steps. Hopefully, they're always growing and developing and advancing. But certainly, the Greece was uh, a scientific, the first perhaps scientific approach to the world. And Klaus were asking themselves the same question. Maybe they even had a gathering like this, where they were asking, "What's going to be my relationship?" to that wisdom out there, that wisdom of science out there, that Greek wisdom out there. was the interaction between that and, and, and the Holy Torah? Right? So, we're going to try to learn some lessons from that for ourselves. First thing to do is to try to understand Greece a little bit. Some of you might have heard this. Maybe for some of you it will be new. In the dream of Daniel... All the major empires, the, the major exiles that, that are called of, of that the Jewish people are going to go through, um, are depicted, and they're depicted as different types of beasts uh, to to show the character of the of the exile. And we have to understand something: we're talking about the four major empires that kind of dominate, the, dominated, and dominate to a certain extent the entire world. Right? We're not just talking about they were successful militarily or something. We're talking about that they were a culture and still to this day remain a culture that is so dominant, that is so powerful, that vibrates so deeply with people that this can be the approach to life for the majority of the world. And that's a big deal. Right? And Greece tapped into something like that. So we have to say, what is it that they were tapping into? Something so essential in the human being that they, that they were an expression of. And how does that relate to us? So the morale tells us that a human being is comprised of three parts and with a soul on top, with a soul that kind of dominates, is supposed to rule over all three of them. The three are the body, the emotions, and the, and the mind, the seichel. And the Greece represents that the last one, the seichel, the mind. Okay? So Greece in the dream of Daniel is represented, does anybody know what the Greece is represented in the dream of Daniel as? I'm I'm allowed to answer this question. Leopard. Very good. It's a leopard. A leopard with four wings on its back, four heads actually, pretty scary looking creature. Um, what is that symbolism meant to convey to us? So a leopard is notoriously brazen. In fact, the Mishnah Perkehava says you should be brazen like a leopard to go and do mi- when, when you're on a, going into to do mitzvahs of Hashem. Which means you don't take no for an answer. You, you, go, you go over through any obstacles. The leopard indeed is a tremendously brazen animal. First of all, in, in thought, he does not acknowledge any boundaries. And second of all, in the way he's built, a leopard is an incredible climber. He can climb trees, he can climb fences, he can climb walls. He's an incredible swimmer. He can swim over rivers, unlike most cats. A leopard is strong, agile, fast. He he may not be as strong as a lion, but he can go places where lions can't go. That's the characteristic of brazenness is embodied in, in the leopard. That's one. The other characteristic that a leopard has is that he is considered the smartest of the cats. He's extremely smart, extremely resourceful. Those are the two characteristics. And if we look at Greece, we see both of those play out. First of all, the conquest, with the speed with which Alexander of Macedon conquered the known world was unheard of. It's almost, he didn't even stop. You, know, you conquer a large city, usually you would consolidate, you would to establish a certain governing system, etc., he would conquer, and the next day they would be, they'd be off, marching to get to, to, to conquer the next place, and the next place, and the next place. Meaning, for them, conquest was an end in itself. So much so, that the empire expanded so fast, almost without hope of being able to hold on to all of it. There wasn't a point. The point was not to accumulate more resources, to improve the life of your people. The point was that Greece will conquer everything. That was the point. And they did. That's brazenness. There's nothing where I cannot go. That was his motto. There's no one that can stop us. And in fact, shortly after that, he passed away, and his empire fell to strife and civil war, and... the empire did not last a very long time. But again, it's not about that. For, for, for the brazen, it's not about even if you can hold on to anything. It's about it's to go somewhere where they can't say, I couldn't go there. Those are the two characteristics of a leopard. Brazenness and intelligence. We see brazenness with Greece. And certainly we see intelligence. Greece was the cradle in in which... Philosophy was born, philosophy, the sharpening of the human mind, logic, analysis, deduction, induction, extrapolation, all these things, all these tools were developed and fine-tuned by the Greeks. Much of science today is based on the Greeks, If you anywhere from Euclidean geometry to... Uh, subdivision of species, which was done by Aristotle, and everything in between. These two characteristics are not a happenstance. The leopard happens to be brazen, and he also happens to be very smart. The Greeks were brazen, and they were also very smart. Morale tells us that brazenness is a characteristic of the mind. The mind is innately brazen. And I'll prove it to you right now. Do a little bit of experiment. If I were to tell you. You know there's a car out there in the parking lot. You cannot lift that car. What would you say to me? Okay, and, and you're fine with that. Do you, do you feel like I've insulted you, that I kind diminished you, that I made you smaller than you, than you ought to be, or are you very comfortable with that? Comfortable. So you said? Yes. Okay, great. Um, if I told you you cannot run a four-minute mile, what would you say? That's okay. Yeah, sure, no problem, right? Okay. If I told you... you know, I, I was discussing something with... Uh, with uh, Professor Imbo, right? In quantum mechanics, something that you won't be able to understand. Sorry, this is going to be, this is going to be a little bit beyond. You won't be able to understand it, but it's okay. Are you comfortable with that? No. No. So what everyone is thinking is, listen. Okay, I might not be a physicist, right? I might not have the necessary background. I might not even necessarily be the smartest guy. But if I put my mind to it. I spent long enough, I had dedicated enough teachers, they would explain it to me over and over and over again, eventually I would get it. You have, maybe you have to figure out an analogy for me. It, it, it might not be the simplest task, but eventually I should be able to figure it out. If if it's true, if, if indeed it's something that makes sense. Which means the human mind, unlike the body, refuses to acknowledge boundaries and for a very simple reason. The body is obviously limited. I'm 5 feet and 8 inches tall, and no taller than that. Right? The, the body is, is clearly defined and limited in its capabilities. And, and even the emotions are to a certain extent. The mind has no clear boundary of where it cannot go which means the mind is innately brazen and refuses to acknowledge boundaries. That's the connection for the leopard and that's the connection for the Greeks. So the question is going to be, that was the story with the Greeks. Okay. Maybe they're not around anymore. What about the reincar- the new Greeks? What about the reincarnation? What about science today? It's clearly a expression of the human mind. It's clearly the inheritor of philosophy. Is science also brazen? So Hashem, I think we have very good news. If we would have asked this question a hundred years ago, the answer would have to be absolutely yes. Okay? There's a term called deterministic science has anyone heard that expression deterministic science Okay, the, the thought about a hundred years ago was that they figured out most of the forces that govern most of the things that happen, still a few questions here and there uh, ideally if they could they'd like to unify the four forces in the grand unification theory maybe you've heard of that but even if they don't, as long as they know all the forces out there then, then they should be able to both understand everything that has happened and to understand everything that, how to make something happen or everything that will happen. Now again, potentially because of our physical limitations or the limitations of the world we live in, we might not be able to do everything, but at least we should be able to understand everything. Understand everything, everything. It should be nothing that we cannot understand. Sounds familiar. Intellectual brazenness. Okay, there's no room for Hashem. There's no room for miracles. Potentially, there's no room for anything. Everything can be. Everything can and must be understood. In the last hundred years, an incredible field of science has opened up called quantum mechanics. Those of you that maybe familiar, maybe you've heard Bell's theorem, but the point is the scientists have proven, proven that there's certain fields, certain areas that must be random. There's certain things that, that must be random. And that's what quantum mechanics is built on, It's based on. Now, random, okay, so it's random, so okay, fine, so what? No. The word random, you have to understand what the word random means. Random means absolutely not understandable by any physical process, by any physical explanation. Not that we don't know currently a way to explain it. It means it cannot be explained. I Meaning they can mathematically prove that there are things that cannot be explained by physical means. Which means they have reached a glass ceiling. Scientists today believe that they have hit Not all the glass ceilings yet, but they've hit, they've certainly found glass ceilings, places that they know they can never know. A demarcation line of Ad Khan, this is how far the human mind can go, and no further than that. Now, there might be non-physical causes for this, but that's already been called random. I call that humble science. I call I call that the science has taken a big step in the right direction. Welcome back, guys. Right? Come on in. Right? We're not gonna We're not gonna stay angry. We're not gonna, we're not gonna be mean to them and say like, "Oh, well, you went off and like you wanted to conquer the whole world. So now we're not gonna let you come back." Right? So we have to understand something. The mind is naturally brazen, but it doesn't mean that it cannot, after having its kind of fun and you know trying its power and everything they can't come back and reconcile with the soul and say hey can I get my job back of being your your right hand man right the mind is an incredible thing the mind is the Ramchal and Derech Hashem writes the mind is the greatest tool that Hashem gave us to serve Him it's a tool it has to subjugate itself to the soul it has to subjugate itself to the spiritual world so Baruch Hashem I think they've taken a big step in the right direction That's number one. That's good news. So what is our attitude to science? This is pretty straightforward. We said the mind is an incredible tool. It can do a lot. However, there will be places it cannot go. If we know, for example, that something was accomplished through non-physical means, you and I might call that a miracle, then science, by definition, will not be able to explain that event correctly. Because it was done through non-physical means. And science is a study of physical causes and effects. Now, science is not going to take our word for it because, you know, what, it, it, their job is to try to find a physical cause for everything they see, and it's a pretty good thing that they do that because there's been many situations where people said, okay, well, you know, this part we can't understand, that must be that, that saying, must be a miracle. That you know, Hashem, even Newton himself said that. The solar system is a little bit out of whack and it takes Hashem to kind of come along and kind of, every once in a while, knock it back into place to make sure it stays stable, right? So they did Newton. Not something to laugh at. It's Newton. Isaac Newton. Um, but uh, lo and behold, sometime later, came along another scientist staying on the shoulders of Isaac Newton and he figured out that that, that wasn't necessary. So certainly we, their job is to continue to look for physical causes. That's their job is. And we don't blame them for it. But if we know, through prophecy, that a particular event was a, was caused by a non-physical cause, then we know that, they, that whatever they will find will be wrong. And it will be wrong in one of two ways. And any other potential way you find will have to fit into one of those two ways they will either hit a brick wall, they will simply not be able to come up with any reasonable explanation for why this happened. And by the way, in that category of brick wall, we're including very, very far-fetched proposals that are you know, a, a one in a million, right? Because in the human experience, if I told you, could it be that, you know, a monkey was sitting there and, and typing, and, and, and typed up type Shakespeare, right, by accident, it just, you know, happened to be, but an entire volume of Shakespeare, he was, listen, I can't tell you it's mathematically impossible, but I can tell you there's absolutely no way in the world that I will believe you that that's what happened, right? So, although something may be mathematically possible it's still considered a brick wall, no uh, zero, zero chances. Okay, so that's one. That's one way in which they can fail. That's the obvious one, and that's the one that most people are looking for. There's another way in which science can fail when coming to explain a non-physically caused event, and that is that they may come come up with actually a good, pretty good working theory that is effective in explaining what happened. But it's simply not true. That's not how it happened. Just because one proposes a plausible explanation of how things might have been, and this happened, doesn't mean that that is how it happened. So if you know firsthand that that's not how it happened, so then it's not how it happened. Now, you'll ask me perhaps, you'll say, one second, but if there is a, plausible way that something could happen, which means that all the machinery, all the the things that the system needs for this event to happen are already in place, and the event could happen naturally. So why would Hashem resort to a miracle to accomplish it, what do you think? Let's just first identify the argument. The argument that I just said is called Occam's razor. Everyone's heard of it. Right? Occam's razor is a good rule of thumb when approaching any question is you say that we're gonna go with the simplest answer. We're gonna assume the simplest answer to be the one to be the one that worked. What people make a mistake about it is that they, that they think that Occam's razor is a law. Occam's razor is not a law, it's just a good rule of thumb to follow. Right? Time and time again, scientists have proven that the way things work is not the way that you would have thought they would have worked. It would have been simpler if it would have gone differently. The entire field of quantum mechanics is complete violation of Occam's razor. Newtonian physics was, was very, very happy. Everything was very good. There was nothing lacking except for the fact that they just found that that's how the world is. So if it turns out that this is actually how it happened, so just because Akam's razor says, well, it could have been simpler, doesn't change the fact that it happened differently. And especially, obviously, being that what you're trying to do, you're trying to get into the mind of Hashem. And you're trying to say, why would Hashem do it like this? And the answer is for any one of an infinite number of reasons. Who knows the mind of Hashem? Right? Again, if we don't know if we do not know then we will use Occam's Razor and we will say why should we assume a miracle for example I walk up and I see on the wall there's dust but there's a, a shape of an S in the dust on the wall the wall hasn't been dusted for a little while there's a shape of an S on the wall so I can think that perhaps someone wrote me a message with my first letter of my last name is S right or it could be someone just walking by and went like this with their hand. Right? What would Occam's razor say? The latter. People all the time go like that with their hand, right? It's not a big deal. <laughs> but if indeed what happened was a person thought, oh, you know, are Schulman's going to be walking by and he's going to see this and I want him to see this and that, that's what he did. So it doesn't make a difference the fact that Occam's razor says that we should assume differently. Occam's razor simply dictates what we should assume without knowledge. Okay, let's just make sure that's clear. So there are two ways in which a known non-physical cause, namely a miracle, can 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 be not understood by science. One is a brick wall, and the other one, a good working theory that simply is not true. Let's give an example of each. We will see shortly that when it comes to origins of life, it seems pretty pretty clear that we're in the first bucket of a brick wall. Science is so desperately lacking of any reasonable explanation for the origins of life, that although they have some vague, very maybe types of hypothesis... That's, that's the equivalent of a brick wall, and uh, yeah, we, we do know that that's not how it happened, we'll discuss it soon, so that, that's a brick wall event. We will see another very interesting discussion, we will, we will be Zohar to get to it, Age of the Universe, where science has a very good, working, powerful theory for the Age of the Universe. It just it happens to be, that's not the way it went. We'll talk about it. Don't, don't, don't. Uh, I know the very charged topics. Everyone's trying to figure out what everything I've been thinking about and what you've been thinking about and what's going to happen. Get there with God's help. Okay, that was the philosophy, I would say, of how to relate to science. Now let now let's let's get to some select topics. You know, something meaty that maybe maybe some people came here to to hear. So we'll start from the big and we'll move down to the small. The more science has gotten to know, the more science has realized that the universe appears to have been designed to facilitate life. In ways that are absolutely mind-blowing. There are a number of physical, what's what's called constants, certain numbers, for example, the big G constant, big G is, is the gravitational constant, right? Gravitational constant basically says how strong are the forces of gravity, right? force of gravity has a certain strength, obviously it changes as per the size and the distance, etc., but but nonetheless, how strong is that force? That's, that's the big G constant, and it's a constant. It's a number, the scientists have found what that number is. Now this constant currently has no known cause for being what it is. I mean as far as scientists are concerned, it could have been double as much, or it could have been half of what it is. It has no known cause for what it is. Okay now if we imagine the Big Bang, right? Which we'll talk about Bezar Hashem, the Big Bang, an incredible concept. We imagine the Big Bang. Here it goes. It goes from a singularity out, you're watching, it's expanding, and then it's trying to expand because it was a bang. I'm not sure where the bang came from, but there was a bang, and it's expanding. And all of a sudden, gravity starts pulling at everything, right? The gravity of everything is pulling towards the center because it's expanding in all directions. Gravity is pulling. So what happens if we double Big G? Anybody? faster or slower it would never have gone out in the first place it'll collapse back on itself right there's gonna be a little explosion it'll come right back in oh. right like that all over what would happen if big g was half of the value that it is anybody what you just fly into dust cosmic dust Happens to be that big G is a very hit the sweet spot right there to facilitate life. Take another example, Uh, and there's many of these constants, This, this is not all of them. Another constant is the nuclear forces, the nuclear force constant. Okay, nuclear force, similar thing, we're talking about an atom now, has a nucleus. Certain forces that hold that hold the nucleus together. Now, the stronger those forces are, the less reactive that nucleus is. The weaker they are, the more reactive it is. Anybody notice a very large ball of look like fire kind of moving through the sky throughout the day today? Anybody notice that? Huh? Okay, so uh, like. Very, very, very convenient for us, right? Because if not, if not for the fact that the nuclear force hit the sweet spot, then one of two things would happen. If the nuclear force was doubled, then everything would be so stable, the sun wouldn't combust. There would be almost no chemical process happening. Everything would just be... That would be bad news for us. right? If the nuclear force was halved, what would happen? Anybody? Too much activity in a nuclear reaction is called a? Explosion. Explosion! Oh, okay, game over, right? So uh, we have to calibrate it just right to where it allows the sun to be Burning slowly, providing a constant flow of heat. And again, I, I'm stressing this. These constants have no known cause for why they are where they are. And these are not the only exceptions. Electromagnetic force is a constant. The universe appears to be calibrated to facilitate, to foster, to house life. With no known cause to it. Okay? Now, the scientists are obviously doing their job, so they have to come up with something. What they've come up with is called the anthropic principle coupled with the multiverse. Just by themselves, the cool words, right? I mean, like, we should do things like that, right? Multiverse. Okay. So incredible. Number 1, multiverse is a fascinating theory because multiverse talks about an infinite number of parallel universes. Now, you know anything about parallel lines? Anybody know anything about parallel lines? Anybody parallel lines? Parallel lines never intersect. Okay. So these parallel universes, infinite parallel universes, they never intersect. They have no interaction. They have no causality between one another at all. So, you can imagine it's pretty hard to test to prove or disprove this theory. Right? So, here it goes. The anthropic principle states that obviously in these infinite number of parallel universes, most of them failed miserably at housing life. Some of them blew up into into cosmic dust because the gravitational... Big G was too small. Some of them collapsed back in themselves because it was too big. Some of them are cold, they don't have any sun because, because uh, it, it, it's, the nuclear force is too strong, it's too stable. Some of them, all the sun's blowing up all the time because the nuclear force is too weak and it's too highly reactive. Happens to be we got lucky, guys. Good news. We hit the, we're in the good one. We're, we got it. Right? This is it we are in the best universe of the multi-universes out there, which is calibrated for life. Again, not impossible. Not impossible. But if someone told you this story and he was not a... Again, he's doing his job. I'm not I'm not, I'm not accusing him. They're, they're, they're doing their jobs, right? But are you going to fall for that one? I are mean, you going to fall for that? I mean, it's not even serious. No way, right? Okay, so the point is, that's a brick wall. That, that's called a scientific brick wall. No understanding, right, as of now, right? why the universe appears to be calibrated to house life. Origins of life. The Torah tells us that Hashem created the world, ten utterances. By Yomer Lukim, Yadesha, let there be vegetation, and there was vegetation. Let there be animals, and there were animals. Etc, etc. What the Torah is revealing to us is that there is a causality. There is a divine intervention. Hashem injects something into the system, and as a result of that, you have life. As a result of that, you have animals. As a result of that, you have man. That's what the Psukim are telling us. That's the simple understanding of what the Pesukim are telling us. Again, if, you can afford, if, if science did have an extremely robust, perhaps what the Rambam, Rambam asked for, a proof, an absolute proof, then there are, there are ways there are ways that we could read the Pesukim differently. This is a simple reading of the Pesukim. Okay? So let's take a look, let's take a look, let's take a look at the origin of life, okay? Did life just arise spontaneously? Did it just kind of come from nowhere? So we will be discussing soon evolution. I want to make sure to keep these two topics separate, even though they're related, to keep them separate, and here's why, okay? In evolution, we're going to be discussing a mechanism to accumulate complexity, there is possible in a step by step progression to become more and more complex. The problem with origin of life is that until you have life you do not have the necessary mechanisms of evolu- for evolution. Means for evolution what you need is reproduction and competition for resources and therefore the most fit is the one that reproduces, and the one that accumulates a little bit of an advantageous mutation, then he can reproduce more than everybody else. And then that becomes the new population now, as, as everybody is like that. right? When we're looking for origin of life, that seems, at first look, seems to be a, a closed avenue. Because we're talking about non-living organisms. So can you just, just get a raise of hands? Is, is anybody here warm? Is, is it warm in here? Or is it comfortable? Well, open the door? We're good. Okay, fine. Um, so talking about getting to a complex system, the simplest, living cell is more complex than most of you can imagine, but certainly more complex than the Boeing 747. You're talking about thousands of interacting parts. Irreducibly complex. If any of those mechanisms are missing, either either won't be able to acquire resources, it won't be able to reproduce itself, it won't be able to um, control its internal environment, etc., etc., Talking about the simplest known, what the scientists can figure out could potentially be the simplest known, uh, simplest cell that could have been. And this thing has to come about through non-evolutionary processes. So, what scientists have tried to do is what they've tried, they've tried to find something similar to an evolutionary process. Means, even though something is not alive, this thing is not alive, and therefore, it doesn't officially um, eat and reproduce itself. But somewhere or another, it needs to. Okay, so the two main theories, one after another. The first approach was amino acids. Amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. Okay, amino acids... In some very specific circumstances, some very specific situations can actually make more of themselves. Particularly, amino acids. It can when it encounter when, I apologize when amino acids have been formed into a protein. Certain proteins can pick up more of those same amino acids and you can make more of themselves. There's there's such a rare phenomenon. Okay, now. Um, obviously, we have to understand the problem is that amino acids are completely not natural in an, in an, in an organic world. I mean, in a, in a primordial soup type of a situation, there is certainly no substantial amount of naturally occurring amino acids. Okay? That's problem number one. I mean, you don't even have the bricks to start working with. Okay? They did do some experiments where, under very specific situations, you could generate some amino acids. And therefore, they were thinking you have this primordial soup, it covers the entire surface of the world. It has, it, but maybe, all the necessary chemicals that you would need to make amino acids. And then you make a little bit of amino acids, and then those amino acids go on to. Assemble themselves into proteins, and, and the proteins make more proteins, and then somehow, maybe those proteins become more complex, and then maybe somehow we can find a way to get to a cell. One problem. Water strongly inhibits, which means prevents, amino acids from assembling into proteins. So, if you talk about the primordial soup, it's an impossible situation. You cannot make proteins inside the primordial soup. Okay, so you're limited to the very tip of a, oh, maybe of a, of a volcano lip, right? See, see 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 how much luck you get on that one, right? You get about um, you know a few meters, a few square meters to work with. You got some amino acids washed up to the end, to the edge of the volcano clip. Maybe they bumped into each other. Um, we have hit another brick wall. Okay, it's a brick wall. The scientists have more or less given up on that one. Okay, the next theory to come along was let's leave amino acids to the side. We'll look for nucleotides. Nucleotides is what makes DNA and RNA. Nucleotides also have some features of self-assembly. Okay? Again, the same problem. First of all, nucleotides are not natural. naturally occurring. And if you find some, the chemical processes that make one, I mean, the environment that's necessary to make some of the nucleotides, are exactly the opposite of what it takes to make some of the other ones. So you could never get the necessary variety of nucleotides to actually make anything. Okay, we 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 can go into deeper and deeper again. I, there's a great book out there, Darwin's Black Box. He works through some of these things. There's lots of other literature out there, but currently some postulations. Maybe they found some some uh, some amino acid you know, traces of amino acids on some asteroids. Currently they're grabbing a straws. And again, if that's, if that's their job. So we're not blaming them. That's what the scientists is supposed to do. But we, that we know through prophecy that the way that life came about was through a divine utterance, we're saying, guys, it's a brick wall. Okay, really, please, and that's the money to Jewish schools here in West Rogers Park. Right? So, um, tuition discounts would be very much appreciated. And by the way, I just want to stress, this all discussion is just to get the building blocks. We're just talking about getting... Just the bricks themselves. We're not talking about designing the building. We're not talking about actually making anything functional or even close to living. We're just talking about getting the building blocks. Right? Is, is that clear? Yeah? Okay. Because of these problems, some of the very serious scientists, very serious, one, one is Sir, Fran- Sir. Sir Francis Crick, which means he's, he's been knighted. Why was he knighted? Because he discovered the DNA double helix. A Nobel Prize winner. Because of the impossibility of getting to this first cell, which is so incredibly complex, without any evolutionary process to get us there. Sir Francis Crick postulated, and there have been many others behind him on this one, that very likely the mechanism of the origin of life is that on a faraway planet, there are aliens who came to life in a much simpler way. For example, some sort of crystals that kind of naturally grow and reproduce, and then they slowly became more and more complex, and they became extremely advanced. And the aliens designed, handmade... A little cell, much like the ones that we know today. And then they seeded planets, far away planets, they launched rocket ships to far away planets to put these little cells onto these other planets. We have not heard from them since, but they may be coming tomorrow. Okay? Again, (laughs) we're not lucky to make fun of them, this is a serious person, but again, his job is not to resort to non physical causes. That's what he's not allowed as a scientist. That's, that's outside the rules of science. So, as a scientist, he has to come up with a physical cause. And theoretically, life could have come about spontaneously if it was built differently. But the way that cells are built, that we've, any cell we've ever seen, the way they're built is that they're super complex from the very beginning, from the simplest cell. So that's why he's looking to have some other type of a life that we have no evidence for on Earth, but some other type of life that went that could be could have happened spontaneously and then designed those. Okay, again, we're not saying it's impossible. All we're saying is that we know that that's not the case, and you've hit a brick wall. Is everybody okay with that? No? Silence? Yes? We feel, we feel fairly confident with a brick wall? Okay, good. Um, now, we, got, we have to talk about this. Everyone's been asking me. Please, can, can we talk about aliens a little bit? Right, like, they're so cute and they're green and they're slimy and something' small and they're big like, we, we, we gotta to touch on, on, on the alien theme right um, so let's talk about aliens for a second many scientists are convinced that the universe the big universe out there is teeming with life teeming why is that? well it's very simple life, however it came about, maybe they have no explanation right now, but however life came about on Earth through natural processes, which it did because that's what a scientist is supposed to assume, these are natural processes. So as long as there can be other planets that more or less meet the very friendly environment that we have here on Earth, I mean, Chicago is not so friendly, but but let's say, you know, Earth a soil, right? But nonetheless, you know, it's still Earth is pretty good, right? So, if if you can find planets out there from the billions of solar systems out there, if you could find planets out there which more or less meet the friendly requirements of Earth, which it makes sense there should be plenty of, and being that life came about through entirely natural means, so it makes a lot of sense there should be plenty of life out there. However, if life was an act of Hashem, it was a non-physical cause to life, if, that, if that's the case, which the straightforward reading of the psukim would lead us to believe, and we have no reason, not even close, any reasons from science to think differently, then we would say our good friend Akum, the Akum's Razor. Right. Akim's razor comes out again not on your beard but Akim's razor right and we say could it be aliens maybe I mean again maybe they come from crystals and crystals can oh it's much easier to make life from crystals it's one option no I'm serious I'm serious That's one option or oh, the other option is maybe Hashem made aliens there's also another option we're not ruling out aliens so you can if you have a little stuffed animal like a little grieving you can keep it right not ruling it out we're just saying Currently, we would have no reason, unlike the scientists who believe this, highly likely, because they believe that life came about through natural means on earth, so there's no reason why it didn't happen in many other places. We have no reason to believe that there should be little aliens. Little aliens, big aliens, green, doesn't make a difference. Okay, That's um, my plug on aliens, but again, if you're very attached to it, you can keep it. There, 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 uh, there. There's what to talk about. Okay, Um, complexities of life. What is known as evolution. Same challenge. The challenge is when we see complexity, see tremendous complexity. (coughs) Straight reasoning says, (coughs) I see design, must be a designer. That that makes a lot of sense, right? You're walking along, you find a clock everything fits so perfectly together it Works. it all the pieces work together they're all interacting they all just right makes sense that it was made by someone with the purpose of telling time what evolution came to say and evolution already has been something that scientists have been thinking about for a while I'm told I even see this inside myself but I'm told that Aristotle already postulated some things like that Right, Darwin kind of put some teeth on it. He really kind of made a science out of it. But the theory is that something can go from... It can reach a complex state through going through a number of intermediary steps. You go from A to B to C to D, and eventually you can get to something very complex, and each step was not such a big change each step happened randomly. Just a mutation, a random mutation. We can get back to the word random, right? We all remember what random means, right? It means the limits of human understanding. But let's just ignore that for now. So random mutations. And then, and then the pressures of evolution selects this one over the other ones because it has an advantage over them. And so the thing you know, that spreads to that genetic material now spreads to the whole population. And then we play that game again we get another advantage, and so and so and so, until you get to something very complex, as complex as that fine young man, Zachariah, over there in the corner. Right? I want to read to you the words of Darwin. Listen carefully. If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, any, if you could find any one complex organ that could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Again, if you find me something complex, and for whatever reason we knew that it could not have been arrived at through successive small... Steps, then my theory would absolutely break down. I mean, there's no hopeful monster. Well, maybe ten random mutations all happened at once, and it came out just perfect. It came out just right. I mean, Darwin's always telling you there's no such thing as monkeys sitting around long enough and one of them just typing up Shakespeare. That doesn't happen. Okay. Now, Darwin's theory was a good theory. For when it was proposed, it's been made a. Maybe if a person is a true believer, they can still hold on to their belief after the invent of the electron microscope. Okay? Electron microscope and other mechanisms that allowed humanity to look inside into these little steps. That was saying if you if you go from A to B, and you, when you go from A to B, that's advantageous. You've gained something that you can do. It's not very not a huge thing, but you gain something. You go from B to C again, you gained. C to D again, you gained. Once human. We gained the ability to look deep, deep inside into what's happening, biochemistry and everything, and genetics. We understood that from A to B, A being the place where you are, B being the very first place where this where this thing will be at all advantageous. There's about a hundred steps in between, on average. Obviously, we're you know, we're ballparking it, right? Which means there's there's You're talking about such complexity having to be reached to gain any advantage and until you've gained any advantage there's absolutely no reason why this creature should have any um, advantage in procreating this one strange mutation. Okay, Which means, in Darwin's own words, if you could find me something that you couldn't get to by successive steps, and each step must be advantageous. Because if it's not advantageous, it's not going to be passed on. Then my theory will absolutely break down. So what scientists are busy doing, they're trying to find how even every 1.1, 8.1, 8.2, 8.3, all the way up to B, they want to find how maybe potentially, maybe it could have been advantageous. But the more they study it, the more they're finding that even the simplest processes are what's called irreducibly complex. Irreducibly complex means that to get the job done, you need all six proteins, all 20 proteins, all 50 proteins, whatever it is, all working together. And if you have five out of the six, there's no job happening. Irreducibly complex. Again, if you want examples, I invite you to read literature, talk to me afterwards, I'll load you up. But uh, time and time again, we're discovering irreducibly complex system. Again, Darwin said, what's the big deal? You just went from, you know, having long arms to like a little bit of webbing in between and then, you know, to to wings, right? I mean, it's just little steps, right? Just little, and each step is advantageous. But when we looked inside, we discovered there was entire genes that you needed to code in order to get that little bit of movement, that little bit of an advancement. Now, I want to make sure everybody understands what we think as big changes versus what we think as little changes is not always correct. Right? A scientist could show you, you could take a fly, make one tiny little change in the DNA, and also the fly is covered in legs. It's got legs coming out of its head. Would you say it's a big change or a little change? Big change. Big change. So it's called a tiny change. Right? All you're talking about there is upregulating one hormone, just a little bit more of it. And it makes legs pop up everywhere. Okay? But when you're talking about developing new... uh, flies, already have legs. In case anybody didn't know. They already have legs. Um, When you're talking about developing brand new systems, that's when it gets really complicated. Okay? The difference between those two, the terminology is microevolution versus macroevolution. Microevolution is simply an advanced form of adaptation. Just like you and I can adapt to our environment... So, to a species, can a little bit adapt to its environment, right? I can I can get a little bit more tan if it's a, if it's a high climate I'm li- living in, right? I can bulk up a little bit, of muscle if need be, etc. But I, I cannot just develop wings and fly, right? So, to a population, we've seen many many times microevolution: the beaks of certain parrots getting a little bit longer, or a little bit shorter, or wings, or whatever it is. That that's just that's just adaptation, It's microevolution. A macroevolution to develop something new, or what's called speciation, to become a brand new species, right? Where a chicken come from? One time it was dinosaur, and a later, 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 the chicken came out, right? That's where the challenge is, okay? Macroevolution. The just a little bit about genetics. People don't understand how complex and sensitive the genetic machinery is. You're talking about adding in some more, you know, some more code, right? Imagine your computer program, you're adding some code, right? So what's the big deal? I add an extra word or whatever. The genetic code is read in in threes. It means it's a um, frame. There's you, you look at, it's like uh, if, if you were to write an entire book, but you write it with no spaces. So how do I know where the words break? Well, the answer is, every word is three letters. Exactly. By the way, those of you who think about it, the Torah HaKadoshah is written, the, the root of every word is three letters, we'll talk about it later. But, the, so in the, in the DNA code, you, you read three, 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 and you move over like that. What happens if I insert a single number in there? That's called a frame shift. Right? All of a sudden... You shift the way you're reading everything. Meaning, you're off by one. So every word is not going to be completely messed up. Does that make sense? If I I have U, R. U is three letters. R is three letters, right? Now in front of the U, I insert I. So now I will read I, Y, O. That will be one word. I, O. And then U A R will be another word. And then there will be an E. Right? Which means the entire reading for that entire gene has been shifted, and that spells death for the organism. Okay, So in most cases, single mutation, when you're trying to write new code, spells absolute death for the organism. Okay? And if we're trying to write stretches to come up with a single gene, you're trying to write stretches of a hundred nucleotides about ten times in a row with gaps in between. And all that has to happen without any evolutionary advantage in order to get to do something new which maybe could have some evolutionary advantage. Am I making myself clear? Is is, is the math clear over here? What? What? Okay, um, evolutionists respond, okay, yes, you've you've poked a bunch of holes in our argument, however, first of all, we see a stepwise progression. We look at the fossil record, we see stepwise progression, I show you over here, that's over here, that's over here, it's over here, see the parallelism, you see how it's moving, beautiful, you see the evolution happening right there in the fossil record, number one, okay, they're missing the transitional stages, it's not, okay, nothing can be perfect. Um number one number two is what's called imperfections if your god did it why should there be imperfections creatures talk about that next okay let's just come back to over here to with the progression so I was doing some research for this stuff and I got very excited as on online I found an article the article was titled the evolution of computer languages and I thought oh finally we found a real live example of of macroevolution. Computer languages are very complex, right? And they're quite different one from the other. You couldn't just, by accident, if you're typing in C, all of a sudden to, you know, start to ty- start get, get a different language, right? And nonetheless, this is the evolution of computer languages. Can you explain to me what it means the evolution of computer languages? Is there any computers in the room? Computer programmers? Is there any computer programmers in the room? No. I can't believe we have a room full of... Oh, there's one guy who's willing to admit to it. Okay, what does it mean that what does it mean the evolution of computer languages? People change the time. What do you mean? But I see but I see a clear progression. I, I I see like let's say C, I see C++. I see the you know alpha, beta, gamma, I don't know, whatever it is, right? I, I see that they're they're clearly kind of doing the same thing, but on a more but each time on a more complicated level. not doesn't that mean there's evolution, like you know, random movement from one to the next? For in that case, people change, oh, so what do they mean? They mean that there is a you're you're seeing a stepwise pr- movement of parallel, right? That it went from this to this to this and to that, right? And you have all the same parts that you had in the simpler language in the more complex language, right? And in fact, I'm told that. For any particular computer to do what it's meant to do, it has to be working on three languages simultaneously. Is that correct? The language that the computer program is writing in, the chip language, right, and the machine and the machine code. What? Okay? That's what, that's what I'm told. Uh, which means that parallelism does not show causality in any way, especially if you're missing. The fossil records in between to show the transition. All you've identified is that there are parallel systems. Well, good for you, right? We also agree to that, right? In fact, in, in fact, that's that's exactly how Hashem built the world, right? Speak to the, speak to me in private. We'll talk, we'll, we'll talk about. Ten different stages, etc. Right, but uh, that, that just because you showed parallelism does not show progression, does not show causality. Okay. The other the other attack they have is the imperfect creatures. Say if God would have created the world and every creature would be perfect, but we see that's not the case. Let's give a couple of examples. You have the python pelvis. A python, the large snake, has a little pelvis. Obviously, snakes don't have legs, so pelvis doesn't appear to be very useful for a snake. So why would a snake have a pelvis if not for the fact that it evolved from some sort of a lizard? Okay, There's some creatures that live in the dark that have eyes that can't see. Why would you have eyes that can't see? If not, then you evolved from a creature that once had eyes and could see, and now you become a creature that lives in the dark and can't see, but you still have that remnant of the eyes. A hole in the eye. Why would a person have a blind spot in the middle of their eye? If not, then it evolved through evolution. So, the, this, this line of questioning violates Newton's very commonly said statement. He said, Physics, beware of metaphysics. Okay? To ask the question, Why would God do this? That's not a scientific question. There's nothing scientific about that question. Now, w- why? I don't know why. Maybe he had some sort of a reason why he did it, right? Um, as it pertains to the Python pelvis, I would refer the reader to Genesis three fourteen. Um, there's a story over there about what happened with the Python legs. Okay, but otherwise, for some of the other questions, why would there be creatures that have eyes that can't see? Let's just postulate for a second. Maybe Hashem has a certain toolbox, a certain way that He builds all creatures. And all creatures have in common a certain pattern. Even if, in some of them, certain parts are so minuscule and so weak, but nonetheless they have to leave a trace. Okay, if, if you want more um, discussion about it, we can, we can discuss it afterwards. But uh, it's, uh, the, the way, the, the building blocks, the Torah tells us, uh, the building blocks of the entire creation are common. Hashem used the same structure to build everything, not just man, not just animals, the entire world has that. Why would it be like that? Because that's how Hashem built the world. In fact, he did it that way, so we should know, we should be able to know him and his ways better. Okay? But the point is, these are non-scientific questions, so we don't really have to go into it, but, Baruch Hashem, we have the Torah, so we can address it, unlike, unlike the, the non-Jews who, who just simply say, this is a non-scientific question, and I don't have to address it, the, the religious ones. Okay. So again, if you ask, so if you've already shown origins of life is a brick wall, Evolution is a brick wall. So why are they holding on to it? Why are still so many scientists believing it? I mean, these are extremely smart people. These are very diligent people. The answer is very simple. They're doing their job. Their job is to look. The definition of a scientist is a person who looks for physical causes to events. And it would be illegal for them. To resort to non-physical causes—a violation of scientific principles. What does he personally believe? That's a, that's a separate discussion. Maybe he even believe. Maybe he believes differently. But unless he is bound by science to continue searching for a physical cause, okay. But that shouldn't cause us, the rest of us who are not employed as scientists, to you know feel like uh, this is something that we have to succumb to. Okay. Next question. The Aged Universe. I'm phrasing the question carefully. Not the age of the universe, the Aged Universe. Because for thousands of years, every thinking man, every scientist, believed the universe to be eternal. You look around, you see that it's completely consistent, completely non-changing, static. For thousands of years since Aristotle, it was believed that the universe is absolutely eternal, unchanging. I, you asked about dinosaurs and this and, and progression. Answer is catastrophic events. Catastrophic event came, wiped out all of life on Earth. It starts over again. Starts building up, a flood came and wiped out everything on earth. Starts over again. And so it goes and so it goes, but it's eternal. This was the belief until you're talking about 80 years ago. Good news, guys! After 2,000 years of us being like over there in the corner, like the crazy guys who refuse to believe what every thinking man believes that the universe is eternal, all of a sudden they discovered that the Big Bang theory, which was laughed at when initially proposed, is actually seems to be extremely supported by scientific evidence from so many different directions. Which means that the universe is not eternal, it is aged. It has an age. It came into being from a singularity. You have to understand what singularity means. People throw on this term, singularity. Singularity means to a scientist, non-existence. You know why? Because there's no time and there's no place. No time and no place, that means non-existence. You're talking about from non-existence to existence. You're talking about an event that begs to be called a creation event. If we had more time, we would address some ways that some very few extremely creative scientists have tried to get out of this. But in the end, it's, it doesn't, doesn't really make much of a difference. Um, we're going to we're gonna have to kind of kick this thing into, into, uh, into overdrive because uh, I understand that people have to make it uh, tomorrow pretty soon. So, the age of the universe, okay, we're not going to be able to go into all the details, but the big picture is a, is a very straightforward picture, okay? We just finished saying that the universe came into being from non-existence into existence. Now scientists assume, because it is the most reasonable thing for them to assume, that it came into existence and it was all there, right there and then, and with some changes, it has, it has, uh, some, some things have changed, they, they admit even some of the laws of physics have changed because of the way that the universe behaved, but nonetheless, m- it, it's still the physical world that we know. We know that's not the case. We know that Hashem layered reality on with the ten utterances. One after another, after another, after another. Okay? Now what does it mean aging? When we talk about identifying the age of something, what does it mean? Scientists are not, let's just get something clear, scientists are not, looking back at the past, how many times the earth has gone around the sun from... The time that that, the first man walked on earth. That for sure they're not doing. They have no ability to do that. So when they talk about the world, the, the universe being almost 14 billion years old, what does it mean? What it means is they're giving you a measurement of change. Time is a measurement of change. They're telling you, here's how much the universe changed. How could they figure that out? Well, the answer is they look at the change and then they say, well, here's how rapidly change happens that we know. And now let's extrapolate back and we'll figure out how long it took. And somewhere in the neighborhood of 14 billion years. The Gemara Sanhedrin, the Ches, says that Odom and on the sixth day of creation, the, in the eighth hour of the day, they went up into the bed together, two, and they came down four, with two children, Kind and Hevel. In that same hour, Shemeshwab says, "This Gemara is telling us, the world used to behave differently. Things used to change much more easily. Think in your mind, play out a story in your mind of things changing. How long does it take? How long does it take for you to imagine all of Klausel coming together, moving towards Israel, rebuilding the base of Mikdash, the Mashiach coming, and us sitting and learning Torah and knowing Hashem all day long. How long did that take you? A minute. A minute. Because there's no, it's not shackled into the causality of time. It's not shackled into the causality of time. Well, guess what? When the world was still being created, and even after it was created, says the Leshem, even all the way up until the generation of the flood, and even Leshem, even afterwards to a certain extent, the world was so different, it behaved so differently, things changed so much more rapidly. Just to give you an idea, again, looking at quantum mechanics, an incredible, a gem, a gem, quantum mechanics. Anyone here heard of a quantum leap? Either a television show or, or, or other? Okay. A quantum jump means that a quantum particle, when not, again, this is going to sound really crazy, but it's very proven, very very solidly established, When a quantum particle is not being observed, it leaves reality. leaves reality. And then when we observe it again, which means we kind of pull it back into reality, even if we do that a fraction of a millisecond later, that particle can have gone through a world of change, tremendously huge leaps of change, in an insignificant amount of time, how can it do that? Very simple, because not chained down in the causality of the reality that we know as much as real objects. Real objects, if I want to change it, I have to from point A to point D. I have to go through B and C and then D. A quantum particle can go from point A to point D with skipping all the steps in between. Okay? Chazal are telling us, the Torah is telling us, the world was a different world. Change happened at a different rate. We can talk about it a lot more. If you guys have about an hour, we can stick around after Maru, we can discuss it. But, um, these these are incredible developments. You're talking about science having taken one step after another In the direction of what the Torah has been teaching us all this time. From going from the deterministic science. To the humble science as we called it. Or quantum science. Where they know that they cannot know. Talking about having gone. Having discovered that the universe is so perfectly attuned. To sustaining life. Talking about having admitted that the world is an aged world, and even now with with the understanding of quantum mechanics, it's becoming very plausible to understand that the world used to change at a very different rate and that the Age that the Torah tells us was, was the actual experienced age. If you were there, if you were around, if you were observing how many times did the Earth move around the sun, it moved around the number of times that the, Earth, the, that the Torah says. How much change happened? A whole lot. So much so that the world that we understand today, it would take 14 billion years or a little bit less to get to that. Okay? Now not to discard, not to discard what what they're discovering, however, not to discover, we can learn a lot from what it is that they're seeing. There's a lot to be gained from it, a lot to be learned from it, but just in a different framework. Not not to take the the, the full extrapolation. Why not to take it? Answer: so simple. If we would know differently, we would take it because what they're saying is reasonable. It just happens to be that we know that that's not what happened. Um, one more thing I have to address. I'm sorry to keep you all waiting here, is I have to address the issue of dinosaurs. I was told if I don't address dinosaurs, then people will sue me for false advertising. Okay, so listen, once we've dealt with the age of the universe, right, and and time is not an issue, dinosaurs are, that's great, we we can shake on it, right? Hazal has been telling us about dinosaurs from the very beginning. The Torah says, Hashem created taminim, but it's written kosher yud. It's written without a yud. and Rashi tells us why it's written without a yud because Hashem went and he exterminated these great reptiles, perhaps, right? And and uh, scientists to this day don't understand why did the, why did the dinosaurs disappear? What would cause them all to die, right? And the, and if if. That's what the Torah meant, the Tamimim the, Gdolim, the, the, the is referring to dinosaurs. Then it says, because Hashem exterminated How exactly? That's already not the point. But Hashem decided to kill them. Why? It's a good question. If Yisrael had an answer for it, maybe others, we, we, we can discuss it. But, uh, yeah. yeah, dinosaurs, Olamus uh, of to. there's a lot more Torah than you think about dinosaurs. Okay, but again, there's absolutely no, not even a trace of a challenge. So, in conclusion, here's what I want to tell you guys. Okay? Science, just like the human mind, has a very legitimate and important place in a religious Jew's life. That place is to be the greatest tool for knowing Hashem. The greatest tool in the hands of the soul. Just like with Greece, the point was not we're gonna throw away our mind and we're gonna go with blind faith. But the point was that there are different parts to a person, and they all have to know how to work together. So, to over here, there are different parts to a person; they all have to know how to work together. That's why we're lighting candles, guys. Candle. The morality teaches what's a candle. It has different parts. It has the cup, representing the human body. It has the oil, representing the human emotions. It has the wick, representing the human mind. And all of that together can bring down a heavenly fire on top of it all. The burning soul. And if we throw away the wick, the fire can never grab onto the oil. Science is an incredible tool for us to use. Nothing to be afraid of. Nothing to be afraid of. If a person is strong in his amuna, he knows what the Torah says, he knows how to approach it. If you don't know, speak to another Godel. There's plenty of them. I apologize for being late. Let's have a Marv. The second question, on cards? Unfortunately, we can't take questions right now. On cards, however, I apologize. One second. On cards. First of all, if you want to write down your email address, you leave us the card. We'll take the questions. I will be at here after Marv to discuss some questions. I don't know if we'll be able to get to everybody. But um, write down your question on the card. Leave us the card. Leave us your email address. We'll try to get back to you. Otherwise, I'll be here after Marv.